0: Thank you all for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh Let me start by saying uh, Tom Faust, Sam and I have had a conversation. We are not going to continue for the time being to give you the numbers uh, from the Department of Public Health on number of cases of uh, COVID that have uh, uh, been recorded in the last, say, 24 hours, uh, the number of deaths which are always a sad total to have to report, Um, the trends in the virus. Because quite frankly, um, the Department of Public Health may be doing the best job it possibly can, but like many of you out there, we've been relatively confused about the reporting uh, and how they're coming up with their numbers. And rather than give you a false picture for the time being, uh, we'd rather not talk about those numbers at all. I mean, that may change as we move forward and get a better sense of when they're recording a case having been added to their roles, um, when a death has taken place. I mean, it's terribly important for us to have some sense of how the virus is or is not progressing in Georgia. But I personally don't feel like I'm doing you a service by using numbers that I can't put into a larger context. And to be honest with you, I've gotten notes from many of you out there who've said the same thing, that you've gone to the Department of Public Health website, especially in the past couple of days when they've added a dashboard that uh, may be intended to clarify. A lot of you like me have said that it's made you a little more confused. So uh, if you if you uh, don't like our decision, you know I'm always glad to hear from you. Uh, b n i g u t at gpb.org. But I did want to uh, talk to you about that just briefly. I, I think the biggest story in the coronavirus uh, uh, here in Georgia right now is that the uh, shelter-in-place order that Governor Kemp imposed on the state expires tomorrow, and we're waiting to hear from the governor when he whether he intends to extend that order, whether he intends to modify it. He's already said that people who are elderly or uh, in fragile physical health Uh, should uh, shelter in place through at least May 13th, but we don't know whether that uh, he's going to apply that to all of the people out there. Uh, And this comes at a time when some restaurants are opening. And big news, I think, Simon Malls, uh, Lennox, uh, Phipps, Malls in Gwinnett and Cobb County are going to open their doors on Friday to allow people to start coming back in. So there's a lot of movement right now in terms of the larger story Uh, and the data underpins it all, Uh, and as soon as we feel like we can report those numbers reliably, we will do just that. All right, that said, we have a very special show today. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time now. Uh, We're going to talk about emotional health uh, during the virus. Emotional health, mental health, yours and mine. We know these are trying times. We know this has been difficult for a great many people. Some seem to be thriving in the isolation in which they are living. Uh, Others are dealing with depression, anxiety, and other concerns. Um, And so we've brought in someone who really, really has expertise in this area that I'm very pleased is on the show today, Dr. Raymond Kotwicki is the chief medical officer of Skyland Trail, which is uh, one of the country's uh, best-known and most highly respected nonprofit uh, uh, inpatient and uh, day treatment organizations for adults and young people with mental illness. It's in Atlanta. Dr. Kotwicki uh, oversees all aspects of the clinical work there, uh, research activities within, within the organization, and he has a, an academic background that we could talk about for 10 minutes. He was uh, trained at the University of Wisconsin Medical School, trained in his postgraduate work at Harvard Medical School, Bo- Boston University School of Medicine, Emory University, where he earned a master's in public health and uh, public health policy and management. He's, uh, he's got all the credentials you would like someone who we're going to talk to about emotional and mental health today to have. Uh, Dr. Kotwicki, thank you so much for taking time to be with us for Political Rewind. How are you holding up in the middle of all this?
1: Well, good morning, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for uh, inviting me to talk about something that's so relevant and important. Um, I'm holding up great, actually. I think uh, Skyland Trail is doing good work. We've remained open um, at the bequest of the Departments of Public Health um, in order that we can continue to provide services for mentally ill patients um, and to help them recover from their illness, but equally as important to make sure that there are beds available in hospitals. Um, So that when patients need to be um, hospitalized with the virus and possibly intubated, the hospitals would have that capacity. So it's been um, heartening to be a part of the solution, hopefully, uh, to this horrible pandemic.
0: So um, I want to talk about what you are seeing in your work over at Skyland Trails, but I want to read a poem to you as we start this. I read this poem on the show several weeks ago. A listener sent it to me, Tim, Tim Girard, a listener to the show, sent this poem to me. I thought it was apropos of our conversation today, especially, it was written by Wendell Berry, who was a, a writer, poet, uh, essayist, novelist uh, from Kentucky. And here's what he said in a poem called The Real Work. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we've come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. I think that's an incredibly powerful statement about what, how we're struggling today, uh, Dr. Kotwicki. We are facing barriers, obstacles, uh, challenging situations, and yet, Wendell Berry would would have it in his poem, that these challenges will make us better people in the long run. At least that's a great way to start this conversation, don't you think?
1: Well, I, I love the sentiments in that poem and the, the way that you summarized it. Certainly, um, in ambiguous times and, and times where there is chronic levels of stress, um, people really reveal themselves. Um, you know, we don't think that people change, their personality doesn't change one way or the other in the middle of a crisis. Um, it just magnifies what's already there. So in, you know, a very ex- existential kind of way, this is a, a time in our culture and in society, I think, where you can really see what people are made of and we're seeing some really wonderful people out there who are doing many compassionate and kind things
0: what are you uh, what what are you seeing uh, at skyland trail right now um what kind of uh, emotional issues mental issues are being exacerbated by the virus
1: Well, you know, I think in in general, people who have um, underlying mental illness, whether it's a mood disorder like depression or bipolar disorder or a thought disorder like schizophrenia or anxiety, um, before all this uh, started, um, those things uh, seem to be getting a a lot worse. Um, The ambiguity and the sort of uncertainty of what's safe um, makes it much more difficult for somebody who is already in a rather vulnerable position from having a mental illness To uh, be able to trust and to be able to say, you know, to therapists and to other people and and, and patients who are in groups with um, them, yeah, I'm going to be vulnerable in this situation um, because that's a a very difficult thing for people to do in the first place. But when you don't know when the next shoe is going to drop or um, whether or not it's safe to um, leave your room or, or the building, it makes it much more difficult to engage in meaningful psychotherapy.
0: So I want to share with you an email I got from another listener, uh, and, and I do not have her permission at this point, I don't have her explicit permission to use her name on the air, so I won't. But, but I want to tell, uh, tell you what she wrote me and get you to respond to that, and as I think as it represents a broader uh, feeling out there. Here is my stay-at-home experience, the listener wrote me. I feel like the main character of Stephen King's The Dead Zone, Spoiler alert, in the book, the main character gets the ability to predict the future, only it is limited to negative, horrible events, and he gets the vision without enough time to stop the events from happening. He knows what's going to happen. He's powerless to stop it. I feel like I'm living that horrifying experience day after day. The sense of powerless, Dr. Kotwicki, in the face of a virus that, at this point, we have no remedy for, no vaccine To fight uh, certainly is one that I think a lot of people are feeling these days.
1: Yeah, Bill, you know, I think the powerlessness is a piece of it, and the other piece is um, the lack of control. Um, And there are lots of people, I think, who are very successful in um, other aspects of their life who are used of the idea that if you work hard enough and you try hard enough and you muster the appropriate resources, one can really do anything that one puts one's mind to. And the pandemic has shown that's quite the opposite. Um, And so people, you know, who are used to um, changing the course of their lives and the direction of what's going on um, might have a very uh, robust negative response to being in a situation in which really there is nothing to do, with the exception of maintain boundaries and um, stay out of uh, the public um, uh, way, um, there there isn't anything proactive that we can do um, in order to, to try to get through this.
0: So then, how do we? What's the coping mechanism for that? I mean, uh, if 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 we feel this sense of powerlessness and lack of control, which so many people do right now. Um, what's the recommendation for what we do if we start to panic about something like that?
1: Yeah, and it's almost the opposite, I think, of what we would recommend in most other situations, which is to gather data, learn more, try to explore all the uh, potential interventions, and then make a decision to move forward. In a situation like this, um, we're seeing sort of a, a, um, an overdosing of news. Um, and so, you know, the, the recommendation from um, people like the American Psychiatric Association and, and other organizations is to really limit the amount of time um, that people allow themselves to listen to the news and to ruminate over um, information that may or may not, as as you appropriately, I think, from my point of view, described in your introduction to this show, you don't know what's real, you don't know where data are coming from, and it's easy to um, start to develop a fantasy about um, horrible outcomes and terrible things that can be overwhelming and um, increase the, the underlying level of anxiety and stress that we're all experiencing.
0: I really um, think what you just said I, I, r- resonates with me in a very big way. I have a relative who lives alone. He, uh, uh, he is spending all of his time watching TV news. He's addicted to watching the cable channels, can't get enough of them, watches uh, President Trump's daily briefing, and he is terribly afraid. He doesn't want to leave the House probably shouldn't in any case, but is more afraid because I think he really believes that the potential for him to get COVID is 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 very real, despite the fact there's no reason to think he's coming into contact with the virus at all. But you just said an important thing. I've said to him over and over, stop watching the news all the time, which is an odd thing for a guy in the news business to recommend. <laughs> but in any case, your thoughts about that? <laughs>
1: It is ironic, but, you know, if you can allow me just to um, be a bit of a a science geek for a second, um, there's a really good neuroanatomic explanation for why this is so important. And the concept of uh, limiting and and sort of um, dosing the the amount of news that one is um, trying to process right now is really important. So when there's an emotional reaction to anything, whether it's news or um, an interaction with somebody else, the part of your brain that um, starts to uh, be activated is called the amygdala, and the amygdala allows one to only do three things you can fight, you can freeze, or you can flee you can get out of there and um, in the short run that's um, very evolutionarily advantageous if you're you know in the forest and you see a snake, you want to either fight it flee it or freeze so that it goes away. Um, but in the long run, when once amygdala is activated like that, um, chronically, it shuts off the part of your brain that allows you to be more thoughtful and to do what we call executive cognition, um, your cerebral cortex. And so you can't have it both ways. Either you're one you know, is experiencing something emotional and you can do fight, freeze, or flee, or um, the other choice is to have that part of your brain not activated so that you can overlay um, Important thoughts and and more complicated and sophisticated cognition. You can't do both at the same time.
0: So how do you do that? How do you uh, try to protect your amygdala from being assaulted in that way? <laughs>
1: Well, I think you know, the, the point that we're all seeing is that you have to limit the amount of time your amygdala is actually firing by um, decreasing the amount of sensory uh, input that is causing an emotional reaction. Um, there, there are other evidence-based kind of interventions that have been shown to be helpful. Um, one is something that I think I would highly recommend all of your listeners to explore if they haven't already, which is to um, dive into meditation. Um, and we know that um, the, the act of being mindful mindful and focusing really exclusively on the here and now um, is one of the best ways to turn the amygdala off and, and to give your um, emotional system a bit of a rest. And I think, you know, about this in, in terms of depression and anxiety, anxiety is really the fear of what's going to happen in the future. Um, people worry about um, the unknown. They start to fantasize and, and make um, catastrophized, uh, you know, predictions, whereas depression is the opposite of that. Depression is when people are upset or sad about what happened in the past. So, by definition, if people are skilled and practice doing mindfulness meditation where they're thinking only about the here and now, by definition, you can be neither depressed nor anxious because of that timing.
0: All right. So, let's talk about mindfulness, about meditation for a second. Uh, this is, we're getting personal here. My wife, Janice Schaefer, uh, meditates every single day. She would feel. Uh, unsettled and uncertain, even in the best of times, if she weren't able to center herself by meditating, usually every morning. She's encouraged me over and over to do it. I can't even imagine meditating, Dr. I, 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 I'm not exactly going through a period of great anxiety around the coronavirus. Nevertheless, I don't like to sit still long enough to think about Uh, Turning inward that way. What do I need to learn to do? So, and and what is meditation really all about anyway?
1: I, I share your um, difficulty in terms of thinking about that conceptually. I remember the first time I tried meditating, I thought, "Ooh, the person sitting next to me is doing a much better job of meditating," and so I've got to really kick it into high gear, and it kind of, you know, <laughs> undid the whole point. Um, but you know, the point of meditation is to allow um, the the space, the distance between one's environment and the constant um, anticipation of what's ahead, um, so that you know, neuroanatomy comically, you sort of hit the reset button. Um, We know that people who meditate have um, stronger connections between their brain cells. Um, People who meditate and practice it regularly um, have better memories. Um, You know, there's evidence to suggest that meditation is helpful at presenting neurocognitive disorders like even Alzheimer's, dementia. So it's just, it's so good. And um, to give oneself a break, um, you know, sort of um, distance from what's going on in the environment and in the world. And, and literally in your own internal environment is a very healthy thing to do. But to your point, Bill, it requires practice. Um, and a piece of it, I think, is, is kind of undoing the uh, expectation that um, it, it's silly or it's flaky or, you know, whatever else um, to, to really let yourself be immersed in it.
0: Okay, I know that you are not, I mean, first of all, do you all, is meditation uh, or forms of mindfulness something, a tool that you employ for people who are uh, patients at uh, Skyland Trail?
1: We do. We actually require um, daily mindfulness meditation, um, particularly for patients who have a lot of emotional dysregulation. Um, so people who are diagnosed, um, particularly with um, personality disorders, who um, we describe as, as being kind of pushy, pully, that they really want to be close to people, but at the same time push people away, you know, unintentionally. And then there's this weird dynamic where their needs are not being met, in part because of the way that they're behaving, and that creates a lot of emotional dysregulation. And um, the kind of psychotherapy that's been shown in research to be the most effective treatment for individuals who approach relationships that way is called dialectic behavioral therapy. And the term dialectic um, is uh, really a reference to the idea that two things that are opposite can kind of be concomitantly true. And in order to really um, sort of rewire one's brain and and one's emotional system to accept that uh, assertion, uh, mindfulness is a key component of dialectic behavioral therapy. So the patients who are in that track, who are, are studying that modality and who are working with um, therapists and the team um, to be able to develop alternative coping strategies and emotional regulation, um, we, we actually require that they do daily mindfulness meditation. And the outcomes um, show that it, it really works quite well.
0: Okay, so I asked that in part because... Um, I wanted to know whether you could offer even some sort of uh, basic uh, way in which uh, somebody who's listening to the show and wants to practice, at least try meditation. I'm not joining them, doctor. I warn you right now. But uh, if they want to try it, what's the simplest step they can take?
1: yeah so there actually are some really good apps um, that are meditation apps that teach people how to um, meditate, that provide even um, instructions and, and appropriate background uh, prompts um, and you can one can download them and um, I, you know some of them are, are uh, free, some of them are not, but they 're actually quite good. Um, the curriculum that um, we use is actually one that was written by a psychologist from the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, named Marsha Linehan and it's public. Um, people can Google her name um, and learn um, how to meditate using the dialectic behavioral therapy model. So I think, you know, um, it's something that you don't have to engage in, in actual hardcore psychotherapy to be able to do meditation. It's it's um, It requires practice just like any exercise, but people can do it very successfully at home.
0: Okay. Um, You know, you talked about uh, the fact that depression is dealing with uh, uh, things that are in the past, um, not in the future. Um, So let's talk about how we uh, can examine uh, the uncertainty of our future. I sit here, I'm seven and a half weeks into doing Political Rewind uh, from my home, and um, I think I'll be doing it here for quite a while to come. So I I, I envision uh, a life of continuing to shelter in place, whether the governor lifts the uh, restrictions or not. Okay, so that's what I'm thinking about in terms of of the virus. But then I think beyond the virus. I think about the the ravages to the economy. I think about the fact that economic systems around us are collapsing and likely to continue to be in crisis for far beyond uh, the virus. I think about my 23-year-old daughter, who's home from New York, where she had started a very successful theater career just out of college and has now come back to a smaller life from New York City in Atlanta, Georgia. And whether she'll ever be able to get back uh, to, well, she could eventually get back to New York, but to get her life back on Track in New York City. I worry about the fact that my wife's business relies on interaction with uh, people in group settings for the most part, and now she has to reconstruct what she's. Doing. So I, all of those things, I'm thinking about the future. How do I? How can I possibly try to assimilate all of that without becoming stressed and
1: anxious? Well, now you're making me anxious, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, in seriousness, you know, those are valid concerns and I think it 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 makes sense. It's understandable that a, a partner and a father and somebody who's a responsible citizen is is concerned about all of those very practical um, considerations. Um, and in in psychotherapy, we call those things um, sort of external loci of control. So people do things because good things happen in the environment, and they're you know one is worried about um, impacting what's going on um, outside of themselves. And when it starts to feel a, overwhelming, Um, the solution is to focus on internal loci of control things that um, you can do inside of yourself the um, things that are kind of um, in in you know 12-step jargon we call it what is your true north um, there are things that you that don't change and if you can define the content of your character and your principles and the things about you that um, are really static and not dynamic and focus on um, those kinds of uh, uh, touch points it, it certainly can decrease the anxiety a bit, um, and I'm not trying to be Pollyanna-ish, which is to say ignore all the you know things that um, are are concerning in the world, but focusing on what's important in, internally um, is a very powerful antidote to feeling like um, there are overwhelming things that you want that you and everybody else want to uh, try to fix in in the world.
0: Okay, so obviously I talk about that experience, that personal experience, because I assume it would, there have got to be a lot of people out there who are feeling anxiety as much the same as mine. So I'm I'm not trying to turn this show into just being about me. Um, So what I'm hearing you suggest to all of us, uh, and probably you as well, going through these kinds of concerns is, um, without being Pollyanna-ish, maybe I focus on the fact how fortunate I am to have my 23-year-old daughter and wife at home with me and that we have quality time together. My 30-year-old son is nearby, and at least I can communicate with him regularly. At least his job is safe and secure right now. I think I'm hearing you suggest uh, to, it, to try to take, make the best of the – to think about the best things that the situation is doing for
1: us. Exactly right, and I want to um, clarify that you know the the term anxiety has sort of um, had a a very pejorative kind of connotation associated with it, and and, you know there's I think some people there are some people who believe that um, having a life that is devoid of anxiety would be um, ideal. I I don't I don't really see it that way. I think that anxiety can actually be um, helpful in some situations, um, and in other situations it can lead to disability and a disorder. So. Um, You know, in medical school, in a very kind of malignant way, they show um, all new medical students this curve where the vertical axis is performance and the horizontal axis is the amount of um, anxiety and stress that somebody experiences. And it looks like an upside-down you. So there's a perfect combination of having enough anxiety to get you motivated and uh, to do things and to show up for class and to you know study and all the things that you have to do as a successful, medical student um, but if it gets too far overboard people become paralyzed and shut down but anxiety in and of itself is not um, the you know the devil that I think some people make it out to be it inspires us to do things that we may not feel we have the capacity to do and I think in that way it can be very good so if there's a certain amount of anxiety that um, prompts you to reach out and you know have a meaningful conversation with your son and have a, a crucial conversation that maybe you otherwise wouldn't have um, because, you know, the times are uncertain and it would be important for you to resolve something, that's great. That's a a really nice outcome of an anxious situation. It's when people start to have a decline in their roles, um, in their functionality, that they avoid um, interactions or that they stay in bed all day or something like that, where it becomes what I would consider to be a problem or a disorder.
0: Well, it's interesting. Everything you just said takes us back to the Wendell Berry poem I read at the t- top of the show. When right. we no longer know which way to go, we've come to our real journey. The impeded stream is the one that sings. Um, we've got to take a break, Dr. Kotwicki. But as we do, I want to share with you another portion of an email that I got from one of our listeners. Who, uh, here's how she and the uh, people that she's living with are coping Uh, Here's just a portion of what she said. I live with about 250 other people in an old people's dormitory. I won't name it because, again, she hasn't given me explicit permission to use her name. As of Friday, a week ago, we can't leave our grounds for any reason. Uh, We're practicing physical distancing. Those that have masks are wearing them. We have outside volunteers who are making masks for those who don't have them. To keep in good humor, our little ukulele group meets... Twice a week to practice, we played he's got his whole world in his hands as the subtle music under our words uh, makes marks our gratitude. Maybe we all need to take up the ukulele, Dr. Kotwicki. I love it. <laughs> 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 all right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way, and we'll be back in just a minute with Dr. Raymond Kotwicki. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind, Uh, Glad to have you all back for uh, Political Rewind. We're talking about emotional and mental health today in the midst of the coronavirus, the shelter-in-place orders that we have. Our special guest is Dr. Raymond Kotwicki, the chief medical officer, psychiatrist at uh, Skyland Trail, one of the country's leading nonprofit um, mental health uh, institutions. Um, Dr. Kotwicki, uh, we talked a moment ago about, you know, fortunately some of us can turn to our, the families who we're sheltering in place with and uh, be f- be glad that we have the kind of good relationships that we can enrich as we're together. And I'm really happy to say in, in our family we've figured out a way to do that pretty well. But you know as well as I do that there are people right now w- uh, that are, are not so fortunate. Uh, uh, child abuse, uh, domestic abuse has increased. Um, t- t- Talk to us a bit about, about the stresses that lead to those situations.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, the data are becoming clearer that um, people who are living in close quarters and feel confined uh, are, are having difficult relationships. Um, so we do see increases in the rates of physical, emotional, unfortunately, sexual abuse of um, people who are, are vulnerable. Um, you know, I think it, it is sort of the last straw for a lot of people, people who are anxious, people who are angry um, because they feel that their liberties have been taken away um, and uh, that they can't can't do, you know, things that um, they feel are are self-caring in close quarters with one another can lead to very uh, aggressive um, behaviors and and actions. Um, You know, I think also it it depends on the geography. Um, If people don't have uh, separate rooms to be able to spend time privately and think um, by themselves um, or there aren't doors to, you know, slam and and to shut when you need to get out of a a situation and and separate yourself from others, um, those things become very important Important when you spend weeks on top of one another. Um, and so it, it really can just be the, the final part of the puzzle, I think, for a lot of people who um, have some underlying um, anger in the first place. And, and when uh, people in close quarters push their buttons, it can come out in very destructive and um, horrible ways.
0: Uh, when, when you see incidents of that uh, occurring that you're aware of with people who have turned to you for help, what are the resources, and do, or do you know the resources that people in our community, you might be listening to the show, where they might turn uh, uh, for help on that sort of thing? Is it a simple matter of calling the police?
1: Yeah, for, you know, a lot of people, Bill, especially when somebody is in immediate danger, the, the police probably are the best um, first step. Um, I'm a a mandatory reporter as a a physician, so if there's somebody who is vulnerable for whatever reason because of their age or um, their, you know, sort of relationship status, I have to involve um, the legal authorities, including Department of Family and Child Services and things like that. Um, Ideally, obviously, it would be better to get some help and to uh, intervene before it gets to that um, acuity. Um, And so, you know, a big component of, of what the treatment is that we offer at Scotland Trail, um, is that we, we involve family and family therapy. Um, Having discussions with somebody who can help moderate um, points of view and opinions um, like our our family psychologist um, is a a great way to decompress and and to get rid of some of that um, undercurrent of anger and oftentimes entitlement um, and other negative feelings um, that hopefully would decompress somebody to the point where it wouldn't result in physical or emotional abuse of any sort.
0: So if we're not dealing with, if it's not uh, to the extreme, if we're not now talking about abusive situations, but simply if an individual is beginning to feel uh, increasingly, like spiraling downward, uh, finding themselves uh, uh, making, as you said, can't get out of bed, uh, 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 feeling lethargic and incapable of doing anything, are there resources, places that individuals out there Can turn to even in the midst of the coronavirus?
1: Well, the resources are pretty limited um, for people who experience that for a day or two. Um, you know, we, we all go through ups and downs, and I think uh, during the pandemic, there are more opportunities for downs, given all the, the things that we've been talking about. Um, but to, you know, truly meet criteria for uh, depression, um, people need to feel sad. They need to lose interest in things they used to like to do. They need to feel guilty or worthless because they're not functioning well. People have a change in appetite, a change in sleep, poor energy, poor concentration, et cetera. And if somebody experiences that every day for, um, most of the day for two weeks or more, and particularly if somebody starts developing thoughts of suicide, that actually, um, would be the diagnostic criteria for a major depressive episode. And I think if somebody, um, is at that point, they, they require treatment for depression, just like if they had untreated diabetes or cancer or any other medical problem, because depression is a medical problem. Um, And people can't, you know, just pick themselves up by their bootstraps or correct some kind of character defect and it will go away. Now, you know, for the other group, um, somebody who's had uh, a couple of days of not feeling like themselves and being a little bit um, lethargic and and not enjoying things, you know, one of the the best things that the research has shown um, for somebody like that is what we call behavioral activation. And that's just a a fancy term for saying get up and do something, Um, particularly, you know, physical exercise. (laughs) Um, We know that um, the best kind of exercise for mood and anxiety disorders is this exercise called HIT, high-intensity interval training. Um, HIT hurts. I don't know if you've ever tried it, but it basically is uh, you make yourself exercise really strenuously for 20 to 30 seconds, and then you let yourself kind of come back down to rest, and then you repeat that um, over and over for, you know, 30 minutes. Um, It's really painful in the middle of it, but it, it, it does wonders for, anxiety and depression that doesn't meet the clinical threshold of being a disorder
0: Uh, that's really interesting but for people who are experiencing those things are the resources available out there right now are are there um places they can turn for help or is everything pretty much you're still open at skyland trail but you cater to a very specific and very specialized clientele right
1: yeah, we're we're a little bit um, further downstream at Skyland Trail. So people, you know, who are newly right. experiencing those symptoms probably um, wouldn't live in our facility and do therapy eight hours a day for every day. Um, but yeah, you know, some of the um, the outpatient psychiatrists and therapists in town have done a remarkable job, um, very quickly of ramping up to do telepsychiatry and telemedicine. Um, we've seen a huge um, improvement in payors, um, actually, you know, paying for uh, interventions and for therapy that's done um, over the Internet. Um, The government, in my uh, opinion, has done a wonderful thing in in relaxing some of the um, requirements, uh, both in terms of privacy standards um, and in platforms, um, so that therapists and doctors can use um, more accessible things uh, to be able to to do telepsychiatry and telemedicine. Um, And so, you know, I I think the resources are available. There are people who shut their doors and said, you know, we're, we're just not... Able to provide um, that kind of interventions technologically, and so we're, we're going to take a hiatus. Um, but I, I do think that there um, are resources available in between somebody who could just kind of do better by getting some exercise and you know, kind of um, pulling themselves out of bed at home, or um, the other end of the spectrum, which is you know, somebody who needs to come into a residential psychiatric facility. So um, a, a, cu- a couple of
0: other things that I want to turn to. I, I'm interested in how the, the uh, coronavirus may reshape, to some extent, uh, the way we view the world moving forward. And, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. Uh, I, I'm 73 years old. I'm in good, pretty good health, but, but I am considered in that high-risk group. So I've literally tried to shelter in place uh, for seven-plus weeks now. Um, I did the, I I have twice in that time gone to a supermarket. Uh, The other, I went on Sunday, partly because I was just, Instacart was giving me the wrong stuff. And I really (laughs) felt I had to get into the store on my own. I went as soon as the store opened. And I'm a pretty easy going person. But uh, I found myself approaching the store and the people around me as if it were a hostile army. At one point, I was going to grab some produce, and people started kind of moving toward me to get some their, themselves, and I literally had to say, uh, in a not terribly pleasant way, please back up. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> This is not behavior yeah. that I would tend to, to have. I found the experience of being in the supermarket so nerve-wracking, uh, it almost, I mean, terrifying would be too strong a word, but it scared the heck out of me, and I wanted to get out as fast as I can. So there's that. Uh, I also now find that if I'm just going to get in the car and take a drive, uh, I'm not enjoying it the way through. I'm, what I'm at getting to is I'm wondering if some of us are going to become agoraphobic as a result <laughs> of this experience and never want to leave the house again.
1: There's probably one group that will become agoraphobic and probably the other group who won't ever want to go home again. (laughs) Um, You know, I think you're hitting on a really important point. And, um, you know, one of the things that we talk about in terms of people, patients with chronic pain who have a lot of depression and anxiety, um, you know, pain that is unrelenting, like dental pain or cancer pain, that's really the worst kind of pain. If you, you have a broken limb or something like that, you can find ways. To you know, make it seem a little bit more tolerable. It's not with you all the time, and I think um, the the sort of wily. Horrific part about the pandemic is analogous to that. There is no way to have um, a sort of safe place right now. Um, You know, so in um, other times where people were concerned from a sociologic point of view, you could go to your favorite restaurant and have a great dinner and feel, you know, taken care of by the the people there who prepared this wonderful meal for you. Um, Or you could go and hang out with your friends at a bar and have um, important you know, social minus the alcohol, uh, important social um, uh, support um, with people who care about you and, and are concerned about you. But right now, there isn't such a safe place. You know, you mentioned the grocery store, which is in itself a very innocuous thing um, for people to, to go and buy food and it's necessary. And if it creates that kind of uncertainty and, and sense of instability for you, you know, um, it, how, how can you feel safe? Um, and I think the, the combination of um, a lack of perceived control and a lack of power, plus no opportunity to have a respite from all of that, um, is a really uh, horrific kind of um, combination that can make people even a little paranoid and and, um, exacerbate anxiety that can be problematic.
0: So the answers are going back to home delivery of groceries and more mindful meditation.
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah and you know, one of the other right? things that we we use a lot um in treatment for people who are are anxious or um even people who have uh, sort of you know, what we consider to be overt paranoia is something called cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. And it's really the idea that how you behave and how you think and how you feel are all inextricably connected. And you can change either um, one of those points on the, on the sort of triangle by intervening at the other two. So for example, um, you know people who feel really depressed and have very um, depressogenic thinking um, can sometimes change those things by by behaving differently, um, by making themselves um, you know, interact socially in a different way that's uncomfortable at first, but ultimately results in improved feelings and thinking, or um, even just, you know, it, it sounds silly, but even just making yourself smile um, sometimes can improve um, somebody's mood when they don't feel happy. Um, so you know, there, there are other interventions that I think can be um, very effective from a, a cognitive and behavioral um, point of view.
0: You know, my version of all of that is uh, uh, when this all first began, I decided that I was going to maintain the same daily routines that I would uh, when I was going to the office. So I'm one of those people who gets up very early. I'm up at 4 a.m. I read about the newspapers for an hour and a half trying to get ready for the shows. I work out. I'm able to work out right in the same space where I'm doing my show from. Uh, I, I take a shower. I get completely dressed. I'm wearing shoes, Dr. Kotwicky. I don't need to be wearing shoes, but I want be, I well. want to be as much myself as possible. And I really think that makes a difference.
1: I think you're absolutely right. Um, Having the structure and the predictability um, of a a regular routine is really important. You know, I worry about um, people who um, change their schedule to the point where they are up really late at night watching movies, and then they don't get up until noon, and then um, don't have any kind of purposeful activity or or meaningful um, activities during the daytime. And we're unfortunately seeing, um, and uh, you know, I didn't mean to be glib about my comment about alcohol use, but we're seeing such an increase in alcohol consumption that, you know, I worry people are at home kind of um, using that drug um, to be able to modulate their feelings and to have something to do. And the combination of that lack of structure, the lack of predictability, the lack of purpose, and then adding a um, psychoactive um, substance like alcohol on top of it is, um, you know, pretty dangerous.
0: I got to get to our final break of the show. Uh, We'll have more with Dr. Raymond Kotwicki after these messages. Um, I'm always grateful when uh, listeners send us uh, notes. uh, Corey J, at Corey J, tweeted, Mr. Nygut, exercise, gardening, even dishes, any creative activity can be considered meditation. When you do it, pay attention to your breathing and being in the moment with the task. You probably actively meditate and don't even realize it. Give it a try and take care. Isn't that great? We get all this uh, feedback from our listeners, Dr. Kotwicky Good points. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we're we kind of short on time, but, but there is an issue here that I... I I know any number of people are experiencing right now, We I've read heartbreaking stories about it, and, and in fact, we're dealing with it in my own family. There are people who cannot right now be with loved ones who are, are, are very sick uh, or are in uh, assisted living or senior citizen homes. Uh, they're shut down because uh, of the virus. People are standing outside of rooms looking through windows and, and, and there's nothing that can change that situation except the guilt that people are feeling because they can't be close to their loved ones uh, can be pretty overwhelming. And, and that's what we're dealing with in my family. Uh, my father-in-law is quite sick. Uh, he's being taken care of by my mother-in-law. We can't go see him. And, uh, and, and, and because we behave as if we have a choice in the matter, it makes us guilty when the reality is we simply cannot do it. But it's a problem other people are experiencing as well.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm really sorry to hear about your father-in-law, Bill, and I I know lots of people are in a similar predicament. Um, And, you know, from a a public health epidemiologic point of view, there really isn't a good resolution to that. But, you know, let me suggest thinking about it a little bit differently which is um, for people you know who are in a, a dangerous situation or approaching um, the end of their life or who are you know really really sick um, it, it's harder for the survivors for family members to be able to reconcile what is going on in a situation like that and to feel less guilt if that relationship is unresolved um, and so you know I, I would recommend for you for everybody who's in a situation like that to spend this time um, isolating, resolving relationships, have meaningful conversations with people in your life um, that you may not have had the time to have before. Um, Make sure that, you know, there are opportunities for discussions that um, are are once-in-a-lifetime discussions such that if somebody is in a situation where you're distanced from them and um, it's impossible to get to them, you, you don't feel like there's something that has been left undone. I think that that's probably um, the best way to uh, not feel the guilt and and the remorse and regret of any kind of relationship um, is to focus on developing and cultivating the best relationships for the people who are are presently in your life.
0: Well and actually what you're suggesting there once again is a way to take the isolation in which we're living right now. The uh, fact that we, many of us, have a lot of time on our hands uh, and again, turning it into something positive—that's uh, right. Valuing and uh, and finding ways to tell the people you care about just how you do care about them. Uh, I, that doesn't—that does sound Pollyanna-ish, but but at the same time, <laughs> there is a gift—a gift that we have here, to have slowed down time to be able to evaluate who we are, who we are in terms of ourselves, in terms of the people we care about. Uh, how we view the world, our work, there's, there's something as precious about this time as dismaying. Is that a fair
1: statement? I think it's an absolutely fair statement. And, um, you know, Bill, in in psychotherapy, we say that real growth occurs at the margin. Um, And so if somebody is complacent and kind of just um, marching along through life without having hiccups or challenges, um, that's really not the best uh, constellation of factors um, that promotes growth. Um, And so, you know, without ignoring all the horrible things that are going on in the world right now, um, it really is an opportunity to to reassess and um, to think in a a much more existential way of um, one's role in the world and and the interconnections um, with other people that might be improved with this extra time.
0: Well, um, Dr. Raymond Kotwicki, we've uh, run out of time for today's show, but it's been just a great pleasure to uh, have the opportunity to talk with you and to get some insights from you, some perspective on what we're all uh, dealing with. Um, And I'm glad we can end on a note in which we say that uh, there is the possibility that we come out of this uh, in some ways with uh, being better people than going in, uh, even as we face a very, very difficult and dangerous situation. But thank you, Dr. Kotwicki, For joining us for Political Rewind
1: today. Thank you so much for having me on, and I would love to wish everybody good health um, and remind people that um, anxiety is really actually one of the easiest things to treat. So if somebody out there is really disabled because they're so concerned about what's going on, um, I would encourage people to engage with um, some kind of professional to get uh, treatment. Um, And if we use all the resources we have, um, it's really likely that people can get much better.
0: I appreciate your saying that. By the way, uh, uh, Tom and Sam have just uh, posted on Twitter some links for uh, resources you can turn to if you feel the kinds of things that Dr. Kotwicki is talking about. Uh, We're back tomorrow. We're going to be talking about shortages at state food banks with uh, the people who operate them here in the state. It's a very significant problem. We're going to talk about how food banks are hoping they can turn uh, to you and others for help. Uh, so we hope you'll be back for that show. But as we leave you today, do I have a crack producing team or what? Because we read you the email from the woman who's played the ukulele uh, in her in her home with her uh, friends, and they found a senior citizen home in Pennsylvania where they were playing got the whole world in his hands on the ukulele too. so as we leave you today let's listen to the ukuleles from Pennsylvania we got the whole he's got the whole world in his hands. See you tomorrow.